Again, our normal pattern here is expository teaching, walking through books of the Bible to make sure we do teach the whole counsel of God. But uh, there are seasons for topical messages. There's been a special burden on my heart, as you know, on the topic mentioned on that board and throughout the New Testament. We're in the middle of what's probably going to be a somewhat lengthy series on the New Testament doctrine of apostasy. And it's absolutely critical that we understand that it's coming, that it is here, it is growing, and what it looks like and what to do about it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, being the joyous occasion that today is, and that being a difficult topic, we are going to uh, take another week hiatus from that. Um, it's actually been a while since we've reviewed the ordinances given to the church by Christ himself. Uh, one of the, and I hesitate to say Baptist distinctives because it really doesn't matter what the Baptists do if it's not founded in the scriptures. I believe it's a Bible distinctive. There are two local church ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ left for the church to carry out on an ongoing basis. That's not to say that's all that the church does. Uh, but these are ongoing commemorations. They are commands from uh, Jesus himself, these ongoing observations, uh, to carry out until he comes. Uh, side note, there's a reason we don't use the word sacrament. I know it can be a matter of semantics, but that word actually carries the idea of conveying grace. That there's something in the actual ritual that gives you God's grace or gives you God's mercy, and that is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. These are memorials. They teach us to look back to things that have happened. And uh, I rejoice to say, we, we emphasized it last week, talking about communion, the Lord's table. And uh, really the whole meeting or the whole tone of that Last Supper and of 1 Corinthians 11 is one of great sober-mindedness and self-examination. It's no party atmosphere. It was looking in. There were great warnings given for partaking of this with known sin that was not confessed. I rejoice to say the other ordinance does have more of a celebration aura attached to it. Baptism. And I want to treat this occasion as the glorious day that it is. Sometimes I fear that baptism's treated ho-hum. Oh, that bothers me. There's nothing ho-hum about baptism in the Scriptures. Early in my Christian life, I'm not proud of it, but I was part of a larger church, didn't know any better. A church that many of you would know, it's a long way away. But it would actually have baptism contests One big dunk fest. Ask a few questions. Throw these kids in the water. Brag about how many were baptized. That's pathetic. I think what's happening this morning. I mean, there's four people that as far as I can tell before the Lord have turned their back on the world, have understood what great sinners they are, have understood there's one way of salvation, and they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and they want to publicly before you tell you that now they belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to them, and that from now on they intend to walk with him. Amen. I mean, think of the ramifications of even one soul coming to Christ and walking with him the rest of this life. Think of the lives that are touched. 
every salvation, even if it's a child, don't think that being raised in a Christian home makes salvation not miraculous. Your little angels, no matter how much they're taught, are monsters of iniquity without divine grace. Every one of them. And it takes just as much of a miracle to save a child that sits in a fundamental church every week as it does to save the child of the most militant atheist in the world. So this is a glorious, glorious day. And so we are going to talk about the other ordinance this morning, the ordinance of baptism. Now we're going to be turning to several passages, so have your fingers ready. But again, just basic stuff. What, what exactly does baptism mean? How is it to be carried out and upon whom? What exactly does it accomplish? Uh, you may be surprised to know, uh, and I'm not dogmatic on this, but I think it's very probable, as I've read history, among those who name the name of Christ, probably no subject has led to more controversy than the subject of baptism. If you read the history of the martyrs especially, by the way, if you can get your hands on the book, The Martyr's Mirror, I haven't read the whole thing, it's written by Von Braut, it's about this thick, probably 1,600 pages, a very small print, with some drawings in there, I've not read the whole thing, but it's a chronological history of martyrdom, starting with the apostles. And what you find is a lot of those who were slaughtered uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake were slaughtered because of their insistence that they were going to be baptized by immersion after trusting Christ for salvation. In fact, it was out of that controversy that the name Anabaptist came into existence. Anabaptist means re-baptizer. There were certain church organizations that sprinkled them as an infant and said, well, this takes your sin away, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And they began to call them Anabaptists because they wanted to be re-baptized, even though they had never been baptized in reality. In fact, some of them were executed and they told them, if you like baptism so much, have a third baptism. And they would tie rocks to them and drown them in a river. So this has been no small subject in uh, church history. Now, I want to begin with the question, though, why the various difficulties and opinions? I want to give at least four reasons I think those exist. Part of the problem is many of the mainline denominations exalt tradition to the level of the Word of God. And there's many of those. I mean, when it comes down to it, what is your authority? Is it this? Or is it this and? When it's this and, you have problems, not just with baptism. So oftentimes, historically, the question has not been one of sola scriptura, what does the Bible say? The question has been, what do the church fathers say? What does the church, no matter who you insert in that, say? What do the elders say, or the bishops, or the cardinals, or fill in the blank? What does our tradition say? None of which matters if it's not supported by the infallible Word of God. A second problem has been reading into passages things that are not there. Do you know that the... Salvation and baptism of the family of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that story. There are actually some that will take that to defend infant baptism. Here's how the argument goes. 
Cornelius' household was baptized, and that had to include babies. Here's what I'd like to say. Actually, Cornelius had three red-headed daughters. They were age 8, 12, and 16. Where'd you get that? The same place you got your infant. I made it up. Because it's not there. The third problem, it is the work of the devil, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and other places, uh, to blind men with regard to the true way of salvation. Do you know the devil will use bad things to blind people to Christ, but I think he'd rather use good things. One of his chief tactics is to take things that God actually gave and attach a wrong meaning to those. And baptism has been one of the greatest examples. I mean, you could take something God commanded that's a joyous occasion, and the minute, if I got up here and said that when these four souls step into that water, it's going to wash their sin away, I have now taken something good and turned it into something satanic. Just by that wrong emphasis. Because now all of a sudden the emphasis isn't on grace by faith in Christ. Now it's on some ritual that you perform to earn God's favor. And the devil is a master at blinding men to that truth. A fourth problem is a failure to recognize the different uses of the word baptism. And if you trace that through the New Testament, it's actually not always speaking about the same thing, and it's not always speaking about water at all. It's critical. We've been talking about this in Sunday school. Context matters. If I write you a letter, and you take one sentence out of the middle and publish it in a newspaper, and that one sentence, the way you treat it, sounds exactly the opposite of what I said I'm going to have some questions for you. But many will take statements out of epistles, which are personal letters, and use them that way. Without any consideration of what's actually being talked about. What's the greater discussion? What's the point of this? What does that verse actually mean? What's it saying? So when you see the word baptism, don't just assume it's speaking about what we're doing here after the service this morning. Now let me start by saying this. Uh, there are actually seven different legitimate baptisms that are mentioned. Don't worry, we're not doing seven baptism kinds of baptism this morning. Just stick with me because this is important to understand. Now when I say these are legitimate, I don't, I don't mean they're all for today. They are not. But these are all seven of these sanctioned by God Himself. All these are not made up by tradition. They're not made by butchering plain passages. These are actually in the Scriptures. Now, among those seven, there are some similarities anywhere the word baptized is used. And we're going to begin by talking about those similarities. Now, the word baptism is not a translation, it's a transliteration. It's brought straight over from the Greek word baptizo. The English word sounds very similar. And the word actually means to immerse or to overwhelm. It was used in the first century of dyeing cloth to being completely immersed in that liquid. Now, what are the similarities, though, when we talk about these different baptisms? Here's, here's the similarities. First of all, there's a person or a persons, or persons in some cases, that are baptized in some way. So there's a candidate, you might say. 
Uh, secondly, there's some kind of element that they're baptized in. Thirdly, there's an action. How they're baptized. And fourthly, there is a person, or person with a capital P, who does the baptizing. Say all four of those are they have in common. All right, let's just go through these quickly. And the last of these is what we're doing this morning. Trust me, uh, there's a point to all of this. All right, number one, 1 Corinthians 10. Turn there if you would, 1 Corinthians 10. First of all, you have what's called the baptism unto Moses. Now, what does that mean? Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, we'll pick up in verse 1. Moreover, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers, talking about the Jewish ancestors, were under the cloud, meaning that they walked through the wilderness with that Shekinah glory cloud of God over them, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, talking about the manna that came from heaven. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All right, what does he mean they were baptized unto Moses? So obviously Moses didn't stop on the shores of the Red Sea and dunk two million people individually in that salt water. What this actually is, is a very sober warning passage. Here's what it's saying. Moses is presented here as a type, a figure of Christ as the deliverer, taking them out of Egypt, out of the bondage of the world. So physically, they had left Egypt. And the Jewish people recognized that fact, at least in word, and followed his leadership. They saw his miracles. They ate the manna. They were overshadowed by the cloud. They went with Moses right through the very depths of the Red Sea, dry-shod, with a wall of water on the right and the left. And all of them, without exception, ate manna from heaven and ate or drank the water that miraculously came from the rock. Now notice verse 6. Now these things were examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So this historical record is brought up as an account and called baptism unto Moses. I mean, what's the idea? Well, likewise, a person today can be very much immersed or baptized in the things of religion, even claiming Jesus as their deliverer and still not possess saving faith. That's the warning given in Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they, speaking of the Jews, could not enter in and speaking of the promised land because of unbelief. Now look at verses 7 to 11. Also, all of these start with neither. Neither be idolaters. Neither let us commit fornication. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ. Verse 10, neither murmur ye. So there's these statements of warning. And then he says in verse 11... Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So he's using this as a picture, a metaphor, an example, 
that cannot be repeated and a warning against being immersed in the things of religion and yet possessing an unbelieving heart. But that was a one-time event that cannot be repeated. All right, Acts chapter 19. Turn there with me if you would. Uh, the second of these is John's baptism. Or the baptism that John the Baptist actually carried out. Now, it actually comes out clearest here, the differentiation between this and what we're doing this morning. It comes out clearest in Acts 19. But in summary, John came as the forerunner to the Messiah, preached to the nation Israel that the Messiah was now on the earth, in the Gospel of Matthew, that uh, the kingdom of heaven is here, that the king is bodily present, presenting himself as the rightful ruler of the Jews. Now what's happening in Acts 19? It came to pass, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. And said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should not believe on him, which should come, or that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ. When they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John's baptism, it's actually amusing. There are some Baptists that I know or have heard of that would say we trace our lineage back to John the Baptist. There's a big problem with that. John the Baptist didn't preach the gospel like we do. John the Baptist preached a temporary preparatory message. He didn't preach believe on the Lord Jesus Christ when he showed up. He preached repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was breaking up the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah. Largely, John's work was to identify who that Messiah was. And John was then removed from the physical earth before Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. So in verse 3, he asked about their religion or their baptism, what they're identified with, and they said John's baptism. And notice what he said about it in verse 4. John verily or truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So John's baptism was a public identification of repentance and an acknowledgement that the king is on earth, and when I know who he is, I am going to believe in him. John's commission was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And again, this was temporary. John's baptism was not the same as believers' baptism. John himself seemed to understand his work was temporary. He said in Matthew 3, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but there cometh the one, he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not able to bear. And so these disciples are baptized, verse 5, as believers in Christ. And we'll get to that one. All right, now, uh, number three, Matthew 3. And the next few of these are all together. They will go quickly. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. Okay, you have the, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 3, picking up in verse 13. Now, it's common terminology to say... Uh, so-and-so 
is following the Lord in believer's baptism. Now, depending on what they mean, I get that. But if they mean that someone's following the Lord in baptism, if they mean following the Lord's commands, great. That's exactly what the Lord said should happen. But if they mean duplicating his baptism, following his physical example, it cannot be done because his baptism was unique. I mean, Christ was immersed in water in obedience to the will of his Father. That much we can identify with, but not beyond that. Well, why, why so? First of all, Jesus Christ is not a sinner. There's no need to go through the symbolism of saying his sin has been taken away. There was no need for him to say he's rising up to walk in newness of life. He never lost that newness of life. Now, picking up in verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Now, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus were cousins and grew up together and knew each other. But it's interesting, if you follow the early part of the Gospel of John, two times John said, and I knew him not. Now, why would he say that? What John was saying is, yes, he grew up as my cousin. Even so much so, I saw his life that when Jesus came to be baptized, John said, you need to be baptizing me. Because John recognized the righteous character of his cousin's life, but John still did not know that his cousin was the Messiah until his baptism. See, the Lord had told John, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending, that is the Savior of the Jews. God told him, Whenever you see that happen, this is the Savior of the world. Verse 16, when Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And it was after that event that John began to say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I imagine the dots connected in John's mind going, That's why his life was so excellent because he's the Savior of Israel. So Christ was immersed in the will of his Father. He offered himself as the sole sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. But in that, we cannot follow him. And that is also unique and never to be repeated. All right, fourthly, still in Matthew 3, if you just back up a little bit, there's the baptism of fire. Now, I quoted part of that in verse 11. In fact, there's two more baptisms mentioned right in that second half of chapter 3, verse 11. Now, when the Holy Spirit descended on Christ, He revealed the one who would baptize people in two more ways. See, John says there, He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. Now, notice that. He, Christ Himself, shall, this is future, baptize you. And again, the precision there, uh, you is plural, not singular. 
He's saying all of you listening are going to be baptized either with the Holy Spirit or fire. One of those two. Basically, this is nothing more than a description of the difference between the saved and the lost. What does it mean to be baptized with fire? There are groups that actually pray, Oh God, baptize us with fire. You don't want to be baptized with fire. I mean, just look at the next verse, speaking of context. Whose fan is in his hand, verse 12. And he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, it's Christ that does the baptizing. In fact, if you compare John 5, all judgment is committed to the Son. Who's on that seat in Revelation 20 at the great white throne? It's Him. Who is it who's judging the life of believers at the Bema? It's Him. It's the judgment seat of Christ. All judgment's committed to the Son. So He will baptize every one of those who reject the salvation He offered freely. He will baptize them in fire. 2 Thessalonians 1 puts it this way, And you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. So baptism of fire is an immersion in God's fiery eternal judgment for those who ultimately reject salvation through Christ. What about that other baptism mentioned there in verse 11? He, Christ, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, if you trace that concept again, we're just touching on it through the New Testament. It's not speaking of some kind of second blessing to chase after. The Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost, and for the first time, uh, you see those cloven tongues of fire descending on individuals, which showed that God, who used to reside bodily, or I should say physically, in some sort of manifestation in the Jewish temple, was now taking up habitation in you and I as believers in Christ. Where's God's temple today? It's not this. It's there, and there, and there, and there, and there. If you know Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing that is. Now this is precisely what happens at the moment of salvation to everyone that genuinely comes to Christ. And of course the manifestation is the changed life. We see the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in the epistles, love, joy, peace, and so on. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 12. I just want to point something out there. 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll read from Ephesians 4. Uh, here's what Ephesians 4, 4, and 5 says. While you're turning to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, what is he talking about? He's saying there's only one true Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one real body of Christ. 
There's only one real hope to escape God's judgment. That's the gospel. There's only one Lord. There's only one New Testament faith that's legitimate. And there's only one baptism. Now, why not seven baptisms? Because he's referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one supernatural work that makes you a new creature and places you into the body of Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. For as the body is one, he's getting into a discussion on spiritual gifts in the church. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. I mean, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? There's no water in that at all. What he's saying is, every person who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation at that moment, they are baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. God takes up residence within them. It's not something you look for. It's not something you feel. It's not something you see. It's something God tells you happens. It happens the moment you trust Christ for salvation. Now the New Testament tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Listen, you have all the Holy Spirit you'll ever have. Being filled with the Spirit means He has more of you. Because if you're in Christ, you're already in Him. All right, sixthly, turn back to Luke 12, if you would. Luke chapter 12. I appreciate your patience turning to these. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, just before the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he speaks of the baptism of suffering. Luke 12, 49, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. What do you mean He came to send fire on the earth? <laughs> Friends, truth causes a stir. It always has. The same Jesus who took the little lamb or the little child and set him on His lap also threw over the money changers' tables in the temple while swinging a whip. And Christ, when He enters the picture, divides between truth and error and light and darkness and heaven and hell. Look at verse 50, though. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Oh, wait, I, th I thought he was, he was already baptized. Is he going to go back to the Jordan River? Again, he's not talking about water here. He says, I'm straightened until this baptism. In other words, I'm perplexed. I'm under tremendous pressure. All sides are closing in. And he's speaking of becoming sin for us. 
bearing the infinite wrath of Almighty God. And he refers to it as baptism, being immersed in omnipotent fury. I, I hope someday my mind can understand more of that. I mean, when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the earth went black. He was immersed in the wrath of the Father. And he uses the word baptism. Now that part is unique to him. To bear our sins in his own body on the tree. But this is partly applied to others in reference to general suffering for the name of Christ. Turn to Matthew 20. Quite the conversation takes place here. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 21. Uh, here comes the mother of Zebedee. And uh, James and John evidently got their mother to ask something for them because uh, they didn't want to ask, I guess. And the Lord says, what is it you want? Verse 21, she saith unto him, grant that these my two sons, James and John, she's talking about, may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. In other words, can my two lovely boys, can they just sit in two prominent positions, can they, can they help you run stuff? And, of course, the other disciples are going to get mad about that, probably because they were hoping they'd get to sit there. Isn't human nature something? Verse 22, But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. In other words, you don't, you don't know what it is you're asking. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Not knowing what he was talking about, they went, oh yeah, we got this. Yep, we're able. And he said unto them, verse 23, Ye shall indeed, ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. I mean, what's he talking about? You know, for many, maybe even most of God's real people since the days of Cain and Abel. Suffering has been the norm. Don't get me wrong. I thank God for the freedoms we have. I don't want them to go away. I mentioned that book, The Martyr's Mirror. Fifteen centuries of Christians being slaughtered like animals. Simply for preaching the book that all of you hold in your lap this morning. And the Lord was telling these two, you are going to be baptized. You're going to suffer. You're right about that. And all the apostles suffered terribly. And every one of them were martyred except one. I mean, what happened to James and John? Acts 12, James was beheaded. I'm not being trite, but that was the easy way to leave the world for an apostle. 
History records they tried to kill John but couldn't. One time they threw him into a vat full of boiling oil. The Lord delivered him. So they banished him to Patmos. The Isle of Patmos sounds like a resort, doesn't it? It was a salt mine for criminals to work in. Not easy labor for a very old man. They were baptized in suffering. And uh, since their days, countless thousands have been baptized with that same baptism of persecution in some measure or another. Now that leaves us with believer's baptism, uh, which is where we're heading with all this, which is one of the two ordinances commanded to be carried out by local New Testament churches. Now flip to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, the so-called Great Commission passage. The Lord, before he leaves, verse 18, he says, All power, it carries the idea of authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, because of that, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, notice that's singular, not plural, the name shows that Christ is God, as do many other passages. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the end of the age. Baptism is absolutely not a part of salvation. People go into the water, a dry sinner, they come out a wet sinner. Hundreds of times in the New Testament, salvation is conditioned on belief in Christ alone. And to add baptism as a requirement of salvation is to teach what the Bible calls a damnable heresy. It actually tears down the grace of God. But the other side of that, baptism is also not negotiable. It's actually linked very closely with salvation. It is part of the Great Commission. The Lord says, I have all power, all authority. That's why you should go and teach all nations. Explain to them the gospel message. Instruct them so that they may exercise faith in Christ. And then they're commanded to baptize them. It's, it's a commandment. I mean, think about the six that we've already mentioned. The baptism unto Moses, the baptism of John the Baptist, the baptism of Christ himself for all temporary and past tense. The baptism of suffering is not commanded. It comes by God's providential choosing. The baptism of fire and of the Spirit in Matthew 3.11, who does the baptizing? Christ does. Now that leaves us with one baptism that's commanded for men to carry out. I mean, if you look at just a cursory glance through the book of Acts, when you see the words they or he or she believed or gladly received his word, you might as well just fill in the mental blank with and was baptized or something similar. Even that very first sermon at Pentecost, and just part of it's recorded for us, but Peter drops the hammer 
on the bloody hands of this Jewish nation that had just slaughtered their Messiah. And they were pricked in their heart. The Spirit just drove that sword through their soul. And they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, repent, turn. It's a synonym for belief. You can't turn to Christ without turning from sin and self-trust. Repent, he says, and be baptized for or because of the remission of sins. I mean, you could go through the book of Acts and try to find an exception to that pattern, and I don't think you will. It's not part of the gospel, but it is an imperative command from the Lord of heaven. Let me just say something about mode, because I think this matters. There are different views on it. I get that sprinkling, pouring, etc. But I will tell you, I believe without hesitation that immersion is the biblical mode. Let me tell you why. Three main reasons. Number one is the meaning of the word itself. I've already mentioned that. The word baptizo means to immerse or to overwhelm. It was used of dyeing cloth in the first century. And all the other kinds of baptism we just talked about were immersions. They went through the depths of the sea. They were utterly surrounded by suffering. Christ was immersed in the wrath of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, I hope you're not just sprinkled in the Spirit, I hope you're immersed in Him. And what it pictures. Turn to Romans 6 with me. We're just about done turning, I promise. Romans 6. Of course, Romans 6 through 8 is picking up the topic of sanctification, a believer's growth in Christ. And positional truth, what God has made us when we come to Jesus is so, so valuable, especially for someone newly saved. To understand the things that God says happens at salvation that you don't see or feel or anything else. Such an important foundation. All right, Romans 6, let me just read the first few verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if, if, grace makes God's, if sinning makes God's grace look good, why not just sin it up? And Paul says, God forbid, no way. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And he said, look, the new birth you have, it's going to fight against that. <laughs> One of the marks as a new birth is you want to please God and sin bothers you. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Uh, now when we were going through that section, I made the comment, technically there's no water in Romans 6. And that's true. The primary context is the spiritual change that salvation brings. But what we do see in this passage is what water baptism is supposed to represent. What does it represent? When somebody says, I, I want to be baptized, what is it picturing? It's picturing a past event, a present state, and a future promise. All three of those. Now verse 3 Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? 
In other words, your old man, your sin nature and the penalty for sin was nailed to the cross. And in a very real sense, you died that day 2,000 years ago. It's an astounding thing. We look at it and say, well, so-and-so came to Christ on whatever day or week. But you were in the mind of Jesus when he went to that cross 2,000 years ago. And you died with him. What do I mean by present? Look at verse 4. We're buried with them by baptism unto death. Look at the end. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So baptism typifies that just like Christ was raised from the dead, I have been raised from spiritual death, and my intention now is to walk. That's a daily term. Walk in newness of life. I'm not what I used to be. There's a change that's happened. Is there going to be a war? You betcha. Those of you being baptized, does the devil want to tear you limb from limb, even as a Christian? Yes. Don't fear that. Keep growing. Keep growing. It also represents the future. Look at verse 5. If we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There's the promise that just as he walked out of that physical tomb, we also will have a resurrected, glorified body completely sinless with him someday. So baptism typifies all of that. Now, what's the best mode to typify death, burial, and resurrection? Last I checked, when you go to the cemetery for a burial, you don't sprinkle dirt on them. You bury them six feet under. And then there's just the practical implications. Why immersion? Several practical implications confirm it. John and uh, John 3, we're not going to turn there for sake of time, but he's baptizing in Anon, it says, because there was much water there. Acts chapter 8, Philip's preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. The man wants to be baptized, and it says in verse 38, they went down both of them into the water. Why not open your canteen, Philip, and dump it on his head? Because he needed to be immersed, that's why. So the only mode that satisfies the word meaning and the proper picture and the use of much water is immersion. All right, now who should be baptized quickly? Acts 2, it was those that gladly received his word. Those that exercised faith in Christ alone were baptized. Acts chapter 8, again the passage I just mentioned, Philip preaches to this man. Evidently he covered a lot of stuff because they, they come by water and the guy exclaims, hey look, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? So they evidently covered that subject. And, uh, and there was an eagerness, and he wanted to be baptized. And uh, what's Philip's answer? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. What was the condition? Faith in Christ alone. And it was on that profession that he was baptized there in the wilderness. Lastly, what does baptism accomplish? I'll admit I don't understand all of it. I think there's a lot more that I don't know than what I do know, but our part is to obey. But is there something special about the tub of water downstairs? Not necessarily. 
Baptism demonstrates obedience to the plain commands of the Word of God. It's part of confessing Christ, which is an outward demonstration. Some have used the analogy. I think it's a good one. Baptism is like a wedding ring. It doesn't, it doesn't make me married, but it shows other people that I am. It's one of the things that baptism does. It's an encouragement to other believers. It's a testimony to the lost, whether here or in public. It's a public declaration that you belong to Christ and you intend to walk with Him. Old things are passed away. The old you is dead. And that all of you here, if you are a Christian, you're a witness to a sacred occasion and are part of helping hold them accountable for their future actions as a professing Christian. And all of that, by the way, is why historically it was at baptism that persecution began. Somebody could confess Christ all they want during those ten imperial persecutions at Rome and during the Dark Ages, but it was when they came out publicly and said, the old me is dead, I'm going to walk in newness of life, Jesus is Lord, I believe He went to the tomb, and I believe He was buried, and I believe He rose again, and I'm going to stand here today boldly saying I'm a new creature in Christ, and I'm going to walk with Him, and I'm not going back to where I was, and I want all of you to know that that was when the hounds of hell were often unleashed on them because it meant something. Because the secular authorities looked at him and said, this person's serious. They're serious. So those that are being baptized this morning are joining in a long and distinguished train of believers in Christ, unbroken through history, stretching clear back to the days of the apostles. The Lord said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. This is evidence of it. What an exciting day. Now let me ask this question and then we're going to be done. That's great what baptism typifies, but can you sit here this morning and honestly say that you know your sins are gone? There's really one question that matters, and every one of you are going to stand before God. And you know what the question is not? It's not, have you been baptized primarily? It's not, have you sat in church? It's not, did you own a Bible? It's not, were your parents uh, religious people? Did you pay tithes, give taxes, donate money? Did you try to be a good person? None of that matters. Here's the dividing line between death and life and heaven and hell. Are you trusting in the finished work of Christ 100%? alone or are you still clinging to some way that you're going to fix yourself and take care of and atone for your own sin a sad thing is there's many that will be given the chance to atone for their own sin you can read about it at the great white throne they're judged according to their works but the sad part is they're sentenced to the lake of fire for good Even if I had the job of atoning for one of my sins, I would be doomed. Not just because of what sin is, but primarily because of who it's against. God is so infinitely holy that rebellion must be punished.
So either the penalty from your sin was laid upon Christ and you have taken that free gift of salvation and humbled yourself and stopped trying to trust in you, or you're on a collision course with the most fearful judge in the universe. One of those two.